Last week I suggested that actually we're living at a moment in, uh, in the Western world at least which is uncommonly directionless and lacking in confidence. People are, people are angry, disillusioned, worried. We see it all over the place. They are, they are angry that uh, global warming seems unstoppable and world governments are unwilling or unable to act. They are disillusioned that over the last 25 years, despite various campaigns to make poverty history, actually uh, um, large parts of the world sink into deeper and deeper poverty. They're worried, frankly, about the rise in violence, specifically religiously motivated violence that there is in the world. People are uneasy. I said last week that those are actually just the moments in history again and again when God steps in. From an earthly point of view, such times are moments when people are prepared to reevaluate their beliefs, to ask much deeper questions than maybe they do in other eras. But more importantly, actually from God's point of view, those are moments when people start crying out to him and he hears them. He loves to hear the cry of people who cry out to him. And he, as we saw last week, comes down. He came down to Israel to free them from slavery in, in Egypt. And he has come down again and again and again, down through history, as people have cried out to him in their anger and disillusion and anxiety. There is every reason to, to suspect that uh, this is another moment when God uh, maybe is doing that. The, the uh, Bible-believing church in this country is growing, rather falteringly, but it is growing. And uh, the church's friends and its enemies agree that there is a new spirit in the air which some uh, uh, identify as wholly malevolent. Christians uh, uh, would want to say it is a spirit of expectation, a spirit in which there is a real sense that God is working. But God uses people. Only in... Uh, uh, his great work at the centre of all history, um, the work of Jesus, did he actually not use another person. In Jesus, God himself came down to be a human being, to do what human beings never could do, to die on the cross for the sins uh, of the world. But actually at every time, apart from that, since God created the world and up until the moment when Jesus will finally come again and uh, bring all things to conclusion, at every time, down through history, apart from that, God uses people for his purposes. What sort of people is God going to use? I used to think I knew the answer to that. I used to uh, think... Uh, that uh, the people who are really useful to God will be tough, determined, self-confident, gifted, disciplined, charismatic. 
They uh, um, will have the oratorical skills of Churchill, the entrepreneurial ability of Richard Branson, the presentational slickness of the Dimblebees and the marketing skills of McDonald's and Coca-Cola put together. It must be so, mustn't it? But after a few years I noticed something. I noticed that such people do rise to the top in God's church again and again. But if they only have confidence, knowledge and gifts, they actually lead God's church astray. They can look very successful, they can bring uh, um, many good things actually to God's people, but in subtle ways, but very important ways, they poison the church. And actually, because God loves his church, I've seen again and again that he removes such people. And then I discovered another thing. I discovered actually that the greatest saints whom God uses are people who are actually deeply humbled by their own flaws and weaknesses. People who are actually deeply aware of their lack of gifts, their lack of holiness, their lack of steadiness, their lack of strength. So it's been over a number of years that I have slowly come to understand what God was doing in the life of Moses. See, in chapter 2 of this uh, book of Exodus, Moses seemed to be shaping up to be a great leader. He was recognised in uh, chapter 2 verse 2 as a fine child from birth somehow by his parents' resourcefulness and, and a, a, a good dose of luck or God's good providence, he ended up being in Pharaoh's palace. Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament points out that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Sadly, Oxford was just a marshy field at that time. If it, if it hadn't been, of course, Pharaoh would have sent him to Oxford. Moses had vision. His uh, uh, effort in chapter 2 to begin this revolution shows that he is committed to God's people. He has a vision that for, for what needs to happen to God's people. They need to be liberated from slavery and he is, 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 is prepared to go to great uh, risks to achieve that. He is a leader. But gift and education and ability and drive were not enough. God effortlessly thwarts Moses and exposes actually the fragility of his so-called faith. He runs away, he abandons his faith, he marries a woman who does not share his faith, he opts for the quiet life of, the sh of a shepherd. But you see, God has not finished with Moses. In fact, this uh, wilderness period of, of 40 years, sad though it was, was preparing Moses 
actually to be really useful in God's hands. In Exodus chapter 3, 3 and 4, God meets Moses in the burning bush. We saw that last week. And, uh, and the interaction that follows that, that we're going to look at this week, actually reveals a new Moses, a man with whom God can work. A Moses now deeply aware of his own weaknesses. Moses reveals his heart as he asks God a series of questions and, uh, 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 and makes, um, uh, raises objections to God. And we're going to look at what this reveals about Moses and how God responds to this new Moses. First question was there in chapter 3, verse 11. See that? Moses said to God, God has commissioned him now to go and, and liberate the people from Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You know, what, what a different person is immediately is present, presented to us here. As a young man, he knew who he was. He was one of the most privileged people in Egypt, a man born to rule and command. But now he is different. Who am I, he says to God. I'm a man who failed you, God. I am a murderer. I am a coward. I am a fool. I am faithless, God. Didn't you know? Who am I? And as Dave pointed out, here is God's answer. God said, I will be with you. Verse 12. Notice God doesn't bolster his... His, uh, his self-confidence. He doesn't say, remember your Oxford education, Moses. He doesn't try to minimise his failure. He, 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 uh, uh, um, uh, he doesn't try to tell him that he, he hasn't made a mess of his life. He has. There's nothing about Moses that qualifies him for service. Moses knows that and God knows that. They agree there. But you see what Moses hasn't seen is that it's not about him at all. It's about God. I will be with you, says God. Dave pointed out, Jesus says exactly the same thing to a motley little crew of disciples also who had failed Jesus. Every one of them deserted him. Jesus doesn't uh, uh, meet them as, as the risen Jesus and say, there, there, disciples, you really are great people of massive stature, much better than you think you are. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore go. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So stop looking at yourself. If I call you, if I commission you, then I will be with you. Full stop. There's an increasing number of us here in the, in the church who are young, 
and uh, very able. Let me say, if you do not learn from Moses' experience, you will learn from your own. There is not one of us here who, on their own, is God's gift to the world. You may be very bright, you may be very well read, you may be deeply gifted, but that on its own can actually be a deep impediment to Christian faithfulness. If we think we can do God's work for him, we will never really rely on God and it just won't happen. There must be something deep in our hearts that says, like Moses, who am I? to think that I could do anything for God. Because only then can we really hear those words. I will be with you. But there are others of us, frankly, who um, uh, feel a little bit squeezed by those uh, able people, those bright young things. can raise in us a bit of resentment in our hearts, can't it? Underneath it, a sense of inadequacy. I'm useless. But you see, actually, we disable ourselves. Perhaps we should develop a sense of a divine, a, a, a benign um, pity as we look on those who think they are so able to change the world for God. One day they will learn like we've learned. Without God's help we are useless, all of us. Those of us who feel that deeply in our hearts need not have the slightest spark of resentment against those who have not learned it. No, we can be used by God. Whatever our skills, whatever our gifts, whatever our failings, because He is with us. There is a beautiful equality between us. But we must see. Moses' first question then, who am I? His next question is equally revealing. Who are you? Verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, they ask me what is his name, then what shall I tell them? Seems likely actually that Moses has only the haziest understanding of who God uh, was. Um, But now... he has started to appreciate how disabling that is. This is the moment, as we saw last week, when God actually reveals his name to Moses, which speaks of his unchanging, eternal character. Verse 14, the God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am, the Lord has sent me to you. 
And we said that that name sums up and completes and, and, and undergirds everything else that God has said about himself. That he is holy, that he is faithful, that he is compassionate, that he is willing to come down. Moses now knew he needed a deep knowledge of that God. He needed to understand his character, all summed up in his name, if he was going to be useful to God. And he sensed the poverty of his own knowledge and understanding. Who are you? What is your name? He says. Our usefulness to God is measured by how well we know him. Full stop. Let me say that, first of all, does include simple Bible knowledge. If we're not wrestling with Scripture, if we're not reading it, if we are not meditating on it, if we are not learning it, then we will be useless to God. But it is not only that knowledge. It is a willing to put that knowledge into practice. A humble willingness to trust God, to step out in faith in response to God's Word. It is... It is what the old saints used to, used to call developing experimental knowledge. We know God as we obey him. And more profoundly than that, it is a hunger for God, a hunger which longs to be satisfied in God's presence, a hunger which will gladly bear the costs of Christian discipleship because we have discovered that his love is better than life. The longer I live the Christian life, the more I feel that personal need just to know God, to be satisfied in him, to be content in his presence. If I know him, I can serve him. If I don't, I can't. It is that simple. Moses knew, you see, the poverty of his own experience of God, the poverty of his own understanding of God. And he came to God and said, if I don't know you, God, I can't go in your name. And let me say that to each one of you. Whatever God is calling you to, we don't know him we will not glorify him his third objection then comes uh, on the back of God's response I am who I am ok says uh, Moses but uh, people will not believe me Chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered God, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? And in response, God gives Moses three signs. First, his shepherd's staff, verse 2. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake and he ran away from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Then there was a sign associated with his hand itself, verse 6. 
the Lord said, put your hand into your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak and took it out and it was leprous, like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak and when he took out it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And finally God promises a third and perhaps greater sign still. Verse 8, the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. If they don't believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground and the water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. Of course, in today's world, we rarely see uh, um, such miracles, do we? Frankly, the majority of people who uh, claim to do extraordinary things like that turn out to be charlatans. But God still gives signs to his world. The sign of a, a transformed life as we go about our daily work. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's a sign to them. Why is this person behaving in this good way? What's made them different? Perhaps they will believe God for that sign or the sign of love amongst God's people. Do you remember Jesus saying in John chapter 13 verse 35, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another? There's a sign. If of course there is love amongst us. Actually there may be a significance in the threatening nature of these signs that Moses is given. The snake is frightening, the leprous hand is abhorrent, the water turning to blood is deeply sinister. The New Testament says actually that, that Christians give off a fragrance of Christ which not everyone likes actually, which is threatening to some people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, through us spreading everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other we are the fragrance of life. Maybe the transformation that goes on in Christians' lives and amongst Christians is just a bit threatening, like these signs were. Certainly a lot of people feel threatened at the moment, don't they? Um, the latest one this week is Gilbert and George, uh, um, extraordinarary provocative uh, artists who produced a, a, a creation entitled Was Jesus Heterosexual? Um, someone who was reviewing it said uh, that it expressed the anger that uh, lots of people had because these religious people are attacking us. To use Paul's language, you see, if people smell Christ on us, some of them will smell death and hate it. But others, 
will smell life. People will not believe me, says Moses. Oh yes, they will. If you know the living God and if the living God is transforming your life, then make no mistake about it. You will be a sign to the world around. You may be hated, but people will see and some will come. Moses' fourth objection then follows. I don't have the gifts, he says. Verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since, Uh, you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Let's, Let's notice, first of all, something good has happened in Moses. I've been saying that again and again because Moses once was supremely confident in his gifts. Never thought to uh, um, refer to God about how to use them particularly. He would fight for his people. He, He would arbitrate their disputes. And now he knows how ill-equipped he is in himself to do those such things. But God points out that his objection ultimately is silly, isn't it? Verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. I don't know how God has gifted you. He doesn't gift everybody to be a public speaker as he needed to gift Moses and as he gifts some today. Gifts different people in different ways. In fact, the Bible says that he distributes gifts amongst God's people so that together, in completeness, we glorify God and represent Christ to the world. Your gift may be working diligently in business or medicine or teaching in the home. It may be having insight into people or, 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 or gifts of practical service or prayer or perhaps preaching and teaching. But he gave you exactly the gifts he wanted to give you. They may not seem adequate to you. But says God, are you wiser than me? Who created your, your, your lips, your hands, your heart, your feet? No. I say to you, go. Use the gifts I have given you. Step out in faith. And I will guide you. I will help you. I will equip you. Your life will not be in vain. How ridiculous to say, I am not gifted. But what he calls you to do, he has equipped you to do.
And so Moses has one last thing to say. Verse 13, he finally says perhaps what he's been um, working up to saying all along. Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. It's understandable. Last time he failed spectacularly. And God has been patient up to now, seeing that humility that has been carved into his soul and slowly and gently reassuring him. But it's not about you, Moses, it's about me. It's about me being with you. It's about my um, uh, knowing me. It's about me giving you the gifts. It's about me making you into a sign. But here, his patience runs out, verse 14. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. Finally, God has said, enough is enough, Moses. If you will not go, if you do not go, this is what I do, he says. I will, I will appoint Aaron, your cousin, to be the main spokesman for you and you will have to take a second uh, a back seat, Moses. He bypasses Moses to a certain extent. I mean, thank God as the story unfolds, in fact, and Moses learns to be faithful, Moses once again rises to uh, the prominent position that God had called him to as the story of the Exodus goes on. But for now, this refusal cuts him off. And Moses has to be the main spokesman. And Aaron has to be the main spokesman. See, there is a difference between humility and diffidence and refusal. Refusing to serve God doesn't stop God. You raise someone else up. If we uh, corporately refused to respond to God's uh, calling, raise another church up in this city, it's not a problem for him. If you as an individual refuse God's calling, raise another person up, that's not a problem to him. It's a great loss to us. Because we're not doing what he wants us to do. See, this man still had more lessons to learn and he learns them. But he has begun on the right path. He knows his weakness. He knows his uselessness. And God is gently training him that it is about God's strength and God's wisdom. So what about us? What about you? Every single one of us has a a unique niche in God's great plan. He has carved that out for us and he wants us to fulfil it. If you feel boldly confident, yes, I can do it, paradoxically you are disqualified. 
if you feel I couldn't possibly do it except through God's strength God being with me except as God shows me more of himself except as God transforms me so that I am someone who shines forth Christ except as God equips me if you're that sort of person and he can use you. There's not one of us here who will have the role of Moses. But every one of us here is called by God to serve him as Moses was called.